So let's just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask that through my words and through our actions this morning, you would speak to us, clarify to us what they mean, and fill our hearts with the joy that you have for us this morning. Amen. So, as you've probably heard by now, today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday in the church year, as we've already said, um, before the start of Advent next week. And some of you are probably sitting there thinking, now hang on, that's odd. I'm sure I've heard him say that before. And some of you are probably even thinking, oh no, not again. (laughs) Because if you are and you have got deja vu, it's because for the last two years on this Sunday, I've been here talking about the same subject. (laughs) It's just worked out that way. It's not an excuse for me to repeat the same message over and over again, to recycle a sermon that I had already. And it's not because I particularly love this Sunday. I don't put my hand up and go, I'll I'll talk about that. Um, Now, I can't recycle because, unfortunately, the Church of England uses a three-year cycle of readings. Um, Maybe I could suggest to them that if they're a bit short of money, they could go down to two years and then I could recycle, but uh, not this time. Anyway, faced with uh, finding another angle on Christ the King Sunday, I spent a bit of time in panic, uh, no, I'm in prayer, um, trying to find that new angle. But before we get to the new stuff, I'm going to recap a little bit. Nothing too much so that you get bored if you've heard it before, but just a little bit to catch you up if you were lucky enough not to be here last year and the year before. Now, you might remember I told you that Christ the King Sunday was originally introduced uh, quite recently, 1925, by Pope Pius XI. And it moved around the church calendar a bit. Uh, Eventually it settled on the last Sunday uh, before Advent. Um, We as Anglicans didn't start celebrating it until even more recently than that. You might also remember that Pius, uh, Pope Pius, he was motivated in 1925 by the rise of secularism and fascism in Europe. Uh, He could see that new things were starting to rule people's lives and that Christ wasn't the centre of people's lives as he should be. And uh, as I've said, uh, we in in the Anglican Church often use it as a chance to, to look back a little bit over the last church year, to celebrate everything that's gone before and um, uh, to think about the year that's gone before we look ahead to Advent next year, next, next week. Two years ago, um, we looked at Matthew's telling of the sheep and the goats parable. Uh, you remember the idea that when Jesus comes back as king, he'll separate us into two groups. Um, the sheep, which is the good guys, and the goats uh, are the ones that he discards. And uh, we saw that when Jesus comes back, back as king, he'll be a king who... Uh, has the power to judge. Last year we looked at um, the John passage where Pilate asks Jesus if he really is the king of the Jews. And after a bit of backwards and forwards between the two of them, Jesus says to Pilate, well, it's, it's you that says I am. And Pilate asked Jesus if he, if he thought he was a Jew. Are you saying that um, you're the king over me as well, says Pilate. And uh, 
Pilate, of course, is being sarcastic in a kind of, don't you know who I am? Pilate was asking from what he thought was a position of real power, the power of the whole Roman Empire. But Pilate didn't realise that Jesus was above even him. And as always at this time of year, it's a great time to assess what our priorities are. Um, We're coming up to the festive season. We know what that means. Many of us run around like mad people. And then finally, when Christmas Day comes, we collapse in a heap. Um, Is Christ really the centre of our lives? Um, It's a really good time to think about that, as Pius uh, was asking us to do. So anyway, this year I was thinking, well, Christ the King Sunday. What what is a king actually like? What does a king look like? So I thought maybe we could look at a few for inspiration. So if we could have the the PowerPoint. I'm not good at PowerPoint, so we'll see see what we've got. There we are. He's up there. Okay. So who's that? Anybody know who that is? Very good. Bonus point. When was he king? 15. Good start. 1509 to 1547. So famous for having six wives and finding good ways of getting rid of them. Um, In particular, starting a whole church just to do that. Um, But we're here in this building partly because of Henry. Uh, Even though the Reformation in Europe was going on at the time, uh, Henry hastened the creation of the Church of England, as you know. But Henry didn't just worry about his wives, he had a thoroughly modern cash flow problem. Despite diverting all the money that he would have paid to Rome into his own coffers, he was extravagant. He liked nice things, and he kept losing foreign wars, particularly with the pesky French. He also had a habit of executing his ministers along the way, so he's a lovely chap. He's a classic example of a king who did exactly what he wanted and really didn't care how bad it looked. He could do what he wanted just because he was king. Let's have the next one, Emma. Okay. Is there anybody who doesn't know who that is? Great stuff. That, of course, is Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, or simply the king. Made amazing music that changed a generation, changed popular culture forever. Horrified the older generation, who thought he completely corrupted young people, which, of course, only made the young people love him more. On his death, President Jimmy Carter declared that Elvis had permanently changed the face of American culture. But despite what we know about Elvis and his continued drug use and his eventual death at the age of just 42, he's still a loved and revered figure. So he was flawed, but he's still loved. Let's have the next one, Emma. I don't think you'll know who this is, but we'll try. Anybody know who that is? That's Edward II, who was king from 1307 to 1323. And this chap was famous for quite a lot, actually. He lost the Battle of Bannockburn to Robert the Bruce. He upset a lot of the country with his affections for a very close friend who influenced him against many of the country's elite. He was deposed by his sister and replaced by his 14-year-old son as a puppet king. Then he was murdered, reputedly by the insertion of a red-hot poker. I'll leave you to work out where after being imprisoned by the new regime led by his sister. So many kings have died horrible deaths, even at the hands of jealous relatives. Being a king is not a particularly safe and secure occupation. Let's have the next one. 
It's black and white because they didn't have colour in those days, obviously. Um, that's William the Conqueror, yes. 1066 to 1087 he was king. So he kicked off a booming cathedral building, no less, starting in 1070 with the Canterbury Cathedral. He introduced the modern idea of castles to Britain. And despite winning the crown in a bloodthirsty way, actually introduced a period of chivalry to England where at least for a while it was a no-no to kill somebody in order to take their place socially. In fact, only one earl was executed between 1066 and 1306. Now, of course, it's undeniable that he took the, the throne through violence, and he was never really loved as a monarch. But on the whole, he was a more reasonable ruler than many who'd come before him or came after him. Next one, Emma, please. Ah. Does anybody not know who this chap is? Emma doesn't. Okay. This is Anton Dubeck, another king of something. Viewers of Strictly Come Dancing will know he's often dubbed king of the ballroom. And it's a title generally used to convey his speciality in ballroom dancing rather than Latin dances. He's unusual amongst the dancers on Strictly in that he's never actually won a world or European championship. He's something of an elder statesman, and he seems like a thoroughly nice guy, but he doesn't use that honorary title himself. He doesn't call himself that. Um, and despite being in 17 series of Strictly, that's 17 years, he only got his first two tens, his first two top marks, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So perhaps he is proof that you can have the epitaph of king just for being jolly nice and extremely good at something. Let's have the next one. This is my last one. I don't think you'll know him unless you look at the shield and maybe think what that is and where that might come from. Close. This is Wenceslas Lass. This is the last one I've got here. And oddly enough, not even a king. Actually, the Duke of Bohemia from 921 to 935 and afterwards elevated to saint. And the patron saint of the Czech Republic. Quite topical, this, because we're about to go into the Christmas season where we sing Good King Wenceslas. And he's a king that after his death, uh, his biographers suggested that he would give frequently to the poor and that he cared deeply about his citizens. And to this day, we're still not really sure whether he actually did or not, how much is true and how much is just good publicity. We do know that he wasn't immune from making enemies, though, and he died at the hands of his jealous brother and his friends. A king that died a violent death, despite being not bad at all, according to all accounts. Um, and he died at the hands of those who were close to him, as often seems to happen with kings. So, let's get rid of the PowerPoint. And uh, the question is, why did I choose those particular kings and what do they have to do with our king? So what is true is that all the people we've seen are called king. But as you can see, that title alone doesn't describe the person. When someone's a king, as in a monarch, you almost need to add another word, don't you? You need to say, well, they're a good king, or they're a weak king, or they're a sadistic king, or they were a benevolent king. 
and I threw in Elvis and Anton in there to show that it's possible to be a king of a thing as well. I could have put Muhammad Ali in there, um, but you understand the point. At least when king is used in the sense of being the king of something, it's a title that's been bestowed on somebody out of adoration or affection, um, often despite obvious flaws, as we saw with Elvis's case. But what do these kings have to do with our king? Well, actually, pretty much nothing. And that's kind of my point. The king we're talking about today is so utterly different from our worldly understanding of what a king is, we almost need a different language to describe him. Pilate illustrates the point well because he didn't understand just how different Jesus was. When Pilate asks Jesus, are you king of the Jews? He sort of meant, are you their ruler? Do you tell them what to do? He had that assumption that a king is a ruler who dictates what happens and how people should behave and that you're just a ruler over a country or a bunch of people. And we see that in today's passage that we had from Luke, where um, he tells us about Golgotha and Jesus on the cross. Some wag's written a little sign on, the, on a placard that they stick to the cross that says, this is the king of the Jews. They perhaps just saw him as another king, nothing special. Even someone who clearly wasn't a king because he couldn't save himself from the cross. So just someone maybe who even thought he was another king. Even though just a week earlier, the crowds had been shouting his name and proclaiming him as king when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the Romans didn't think much of the Jews anyway. So they were never going to think much of a Jewish king, even if he did have an army. Because the fact that he didn't have an army meant he had no muscle to back up the fact that he was a king. So they were never going to respect that. The Romans had a preconception of what a king should be, and anything else was laughable. So that brings us to the main passage I want to look at today, and that's the Colossians passage that we had. If you want to turn to your Bible, that is on page 1182. And in particular, we're going to look at, um, from verse 15 onwards, the supremacy of Christ. So in that passage, Paul tells us what our king is like. We find out from that passage why he is our king and why he's different to anybody else that has ever lived and been called a king. This passage tells us quite clearly why Jesus is the king. Not just a king. Not just another one of those ten a penny celebrities. He is the king. And the passage tells us why Jesus is the king by answering some really big questions for us. What does God look like? Where does the world come from? Why does the universe exist? Why does science work? Why does the church exist? These are massive questions and this passage answers all of those. Have a look at verse 15. Paul tells us what God looks like. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So if you know what Jesus looks like, you know what God looks like. And we've seen that before. Um, John 14, when uh, Philip is asking Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus replies, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Then in verse 16, Paul tells us where the whole world comes from. It says in verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That bit is saying that Jesus created the universe. He didn't just come into existence when he was born in a stable. He was there with God, part of God, part of that holy trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit before even creation itself. The passage says Jesus was actually involved for in him all things were created. And if you want any proof that he is the king, the passage says that he was part of creating all things, even thrones, powers and rulers. He's over everything. He's a super king, the king of kings. There's another key point at the end of verse 16. If you look carefully, it says at the end of verse 16, it says, all things have been created through him and for him. So the answer to the question, why does the universe exist? It exists for him, for Jesus. This suggests that God made the world for Jesus and therefore we are made for him. Verse 17, there's an explanation of how everything in the world works. It says, in him all things hold together. Jesus is the reason why everything in life works. He's the reason the, law of physic, the laws of physics work. Everything works the way that it does because of him. Then there's the question of why the church exists. And of course, you get the point by now, the answer is for Jesus. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. It's not Bishop Pete, it's not the Archbishop of Canterbury, or even the Pope, it's Jesus. Only Jesus is the head of the church. So the answer to all these questions is, of course, Jesus. But who actually is he? Verse 19 is the answer. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That means all of God is in Jesus. Jesus is 100% made of God. Jesus is God. Do you remember what Thomas said to Jesus when he'd seen and touched his wounds after the resurrection? He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him because he is God. The passage answers one more big question. Who defines good and evil? And of course the answer is the same as in all the other questions. Jesus. Jesus, through his word in the Bible, has told us what is right and wrong. We know when we don't live up to the standards he sets for us and expects of us. Verse 20 is the comforter for that. He shows us the way back to God. Verse 20 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And you remember Jesus said to, uh, himself said, no one can come to the Father except through me. And the fact is that only he can bring us back to God. Because he wasn't just a man, he was a man who was also completely God. Paul has described in this passage just how supreme Jesus is over everything. And today we're asked to consider 
whether Christ really is our king, really the king of our lives, whether he is supreme over us, whether we consider that to be true. And by looking at some of those other random kings, I wanted to show you that when we talk about Jesus as king, we're talking about someone entirely different. We're talking about someone who is the ruler of everything, the creator of everything, and yet someone who loves us so much that he laid his life down for the whole world. We're not talking about a king. We're talking about the king, the king of kings, God made man. And the point of this Sunday in the church calendar is to remind us that Jesus should be the focus of our lives. So I ask you this week, Let's consider if Christ really is the king in our lives. And if he is, I want you to picture Christ on the cross with that sign nailed to it. But I want you to imagine that instead of the sign saying, this is the king of the Jews, I want you to imagine that the sign simply says, this is the king. Amen.